0: Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. Life is hard. and Sometimes it seems like survival is the greatest thing we can hope for. Somewhere along the way, we've lost sight of who or what we could become. God has something better in mind. He created us for a purpose, a God-ordained destiny that makes a difference. Because of this, we believe that we can change, we can grow, and we can reach a potential we have yet to realize. Join us for Aspire, a four-part series designed to reignite our hopes and dreams for tomorrow. If you were here last week, you heard a great commercial from me about the effort we're making to have some really good, godly, healthy marriages. Somebody should have said amen to that one. Yeah, so there you go. And uh, so one of the things that we're doing, we gave these out on the way in last week. Today we'll give them to you on the way out, but it's information about a marriage conference we have coming up first weekend in February, Friday night and Saturday, and we will use that to launch our marriage life groups and to hopefully get every married person or wants-to-be-married person or engaged person or whatever the story is. You do not have to already be married. You do not have to have a failing marriage. You do not have to, I mean, this is for anybody who is or wants to be married ever at any point. Come to the marriage conference to get into marriage life groups and let's get some marriages that the world would be jealous of so we can tell them Jesus is the reason for that, right? Come on. Okay, so we are on part three of a series called Aspire that we've been doing, and this series is built on an incredibly simple idea. God isn't done with you yet. God isn't done with his plans for you yet. And God, most of all, has yet to reveal to you everything that he has for you. And so it doesn't matter how many mistakes you've made, how far you've sinned off course, or, or how old you are. None of those things matter because God can do amazing things in your life. And it is time for us to stop giving up and to go and get everything God has for us. So we kind of started the whole series with that idea. And then we're talking about three things that we believe God has called us to aspire to. And last week we talked about aspiring to leave a legacy. Today I want to talk to you about aspiring to see God move, aspiring to see God move in your life. And this is a perfect topic as we're talking about our week of prayer and fasting that will begin tomorrow morning because this is why we do the week of prayer and fasting, because we want to see God move powerfully in our lives. But if we were honest with ourselves, look, I'm, I'm up here preaching this thing, and, and I have to tell you the truth. I have a love-hate relationship with the week of prayer and fasting. <laughs> somebody's laughing because they already know what I'm talking about. I mean, I want to see God move. And I just love the stories that come out of this week. And I really love where we are the Sunday after. You wondered why Brett said his two favorite Sundays were this one and next one. After a week... Of an entire church family praying and fasting together, amazing things happen. The spirit of worship is incredible, and I might even be able to preach like with my words making sense next Sunday. It'll be really cool. So we're always excited to see what God will do after this time. But at the same time, the thought of fasting, like, you want me to not do something I enjoy? You want me to give up something I really like, like chocolate or food or TV or whatever that is? Come on, who's with me? Love, hate, relationship. We want to see God move. We just don't want to tell him how badly we want to see him move, right? And, and that is what this is really all about. But the, the reality is very simple. If there is something in your life that you can't give up for a short period of time, I mean, sweets. If somebody said, you know, I, th- I think I should fast sweets. Or, or better yet, when your spouse says, honey, I think you should try fasting sweets for a week. And you, you think, get behind me, Satan. You know, I mean, when those kind of responses come out of you, uh, it, it might kind of show you the place this has in your life. When, when If it's TV or if it's food in general, if it's a particular food like sweets or teenagers, come on, if somebody asked you to give up Snapchat. Any teenagers in the room, Snapchat has to go for a week. I think my son would not eat for a month before he would give up Snapchat. I got teenagers back there with me, right? You can't give up Snapchat for an hour. Yeah, that's that. Whatever it is, if there is something in your life that you cannot give up for a short period of time, that thing is master of you. And that's really what this is about because, you know, what I'm saying that love-hate relationship, the love side of it is that there is a godly spiritual part of us that wants to grow. The hate side of it is that there is a human natural part of us that just likes the stuff the world has to offer. And it's this fight and this tension between the human natural and the godly spiritual. So the reason we do this, and we do it twice a year, the reason we do this fast is an incredibly simple reason. I'm going to have him put this on the screen for you so you can either remember it or write it down. But we need to be reminded that this physical world is not our home. Our physical desires are not most important. And our food, our physical body, is not our God. Our physical body is not our God, right? Okay, so here it goes. Fasting reminds us that our physical world is not our home. Our physical desires are not most important. And our physical body is not our God. This is something that I through threw into a message I felt like God gave me as, the, as a good way to describe fasting a couple of years ago. And so I've never veered off from this definition. Anytime somebody asks me what's the point of fasting, this is what they're going to get from me. So uh, just so you know, that's kind of the what of fasting, the how of fasting we're not going to talk about today. If you have any questions about what should I fast, how should I fast, should I fast food, what does that look like, why should I do this on our website and now on your phones. On the Grace Life app, we have an entire page dedicated to the week of prayer and fasting. It's actually there all year long. You can go anytime. And it's got articles about what to do and how to do it. It's got messages I've preached in the past about how to fast and what those things are. So we're going to let you go and figure out what God has called you to do and how to go about that on your own at this point, because I can't answer every question in one day. What I want to talk about today is why, why would we fast? And the question, the answer is a question. Do you aspire to see God move powerfully in your life? Do you? I see two heads nodding. Great. Let's try this again. Do you aspire to see God move powerfully in your life? Okay. And fasting demonstrates that. But I, I need to give you all kind of an update on the way the world works here. If you do aspire to see God move powerfully in your life, then here's, here's the newsflash. You've got to have a situation. You've got to have a situation that requires God to move powerfully in your life. To be honest, truth is your entire life is likely to become the situation where you need to see God move powerfully in your life. And if everything is just absolutely perfect and hunky-dory and you've got it covered, then you don't need God to move powerfully in your life. And people ask me all the time as a pastor, why am I going through this? Well, that's real simple, because God wants to remind you you need him. So what I want to show you today is just one story. The Bible is full of them. Just one story of someone who got themselves into a situation, and they needed God to move powerfully. And so they demonstrated to God how much how desperate they were to see him move powerfully. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Esther. If you're not sure where that is, Psalms takes up a lot of the Old Testament. Find Psalms and go backwards, about two books. That's where Esther is if you need any help with that. And so here's the thing. Esther is worthy of an entire series and probably will do that someday soon. So I'm going to try to avoid getting off on all the things that would excite me to talk to you about when it comes to the book of Esther and we'll to try to stay right on track and only talk about the few things that we need and what that means is we're actually going to hop through a bunch of Esther today just hitting some key points so if you're reading uh, in your Bibles you can I'll tell you where we are and if you're on the screen it'll be right behind my head so here we are chapter 1 verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. In other words, the king wanted to show off. He said, I want everybody to see my woman. I want everybody to see my wife, my queen. But Queen Vashti refused to come. And at this, the king was enra- enraged. Go figure, who was surprised about that part? And his anger burned within him. And so if you're going to have a situation, the first thing that happens is God is setting up for a move. God is setting up to do something. And, and here's the thing. Right now, we don't even sometimes see what, when God is doing something, what is he doing? How do these pieces come together? I don't understand how these pieces come together. I'm a chess player. I love playing chess. I don't claim to be very good at it. Matter of fact, to give you a demonstration of how not good at it I am, one of my biggest mentors, matter of fact, the biggest chess mentor in my life, was one of my students when I taught high school. And so we would play every day. We'd have a chessboard on the corner of my desk, and we would have a game always going. Sometimes we could knock a game out in two minutes as class was getting started or class was ending or waiting on the bell or before school or after school or whatever. In one school year, which is 180 days, I am pretty sure we played somewhere in the neighborhood of a 1,000 games. No exaggeration, somewhere in the neighborhood of a 1,000 games. And so here's the thing. I lost every one of them. Every single one of them. And here's the reason. Because he would make moves at the beginning of the game that looked so incredibly random, I could not see what in the world he would do with them. I'm thinking, why would you put that piece there? And then he wouldn't move it again for so many moves, I would forget it was there. And he would do something else random. And so much later, I would forget that that had even taken place. And the next thing I know, every single one of those random things was staring down at my king, and it was dead. And this is what God is doing in your life. Sometimes God is doing things and you don't understand them. You don't even see what he's doing. The things that are around you look so incredibly random. So think about this. Who is the star of this story? Well, that's always the correct answer in any church. But let's go with Esther because Esther is the one we're talking about. You're right, though. God is truly the star of the story. Number two, who's the co-star? Esther. All right. What is the name of the book? Esther, but who are we talking about? Vashti and Ahasuerus. And you're thinking, what in the world does this have to do with anything? If you don't know the story, that's probably what you're thinking. If you do know the story, that's only because you've cheated. You know what comes later, right? But at this point, you're going, what in the world is going on? God is setting up for a move, and you can't always see it. You don't know the random stuff that's going on. In order to do something amazing with Esther, we've got to have Queen Vashti saying, I don't want to come to your party. And I don't know if she was just like too busy catching up on real housewives of like Susa or or whatever she had going on. But see, here's the thing. I believe God is sovereign and God is directing everything. God directs our souls and he's, he's got so much going on that for some reason he put it into her spirit to actually think she could say no to the king. Now, let's be honest, that takes some kind of otherworldly intervention. It either takes something demonic or something God, because nobody in their right mind would look at the king and say, nah, I ain't coming. It just never in history with any king anywhere, anytime would that have been a good idea. So we know God is up to something and whatever is going on, God put it in her to say, I'm not coming. So here's what happens, because we can't read the entire book of Esther today. The king gets together with his people and goes, we got a problem. The queen said no to me. What do we do about this? And there was a rather long discourse. Well, we got to do this, and you got to say this, and you got to send out an edict about this. But here's the bottom line. She can't be queen no more. We got to get rid of the queen. So they took away her crown, said Vashti is no longer the queen. The good news for her, they didn't kill her. She just led a rather unimportant existence. We'll never hear from her again. History has nothing more to say. So we're going to pick up the story now when we figured out the king is a single man. If you're following along, chapter 2, verse 2. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. Go figure here. Who is surprised that all of the single young men in the court said, Hey, we've got an idea. Why don't you go find every pretty virgin in the entire kingdom, which, by the way, stretched from Egypt to India to Eastern Europe. Find every pretty single girl out there, and you bring her over here. You pick one. We got the rest. (laughs) Yeah, never take advice from a bunch of young men whose hormones are louder than their brains. But anyway... The king did. This is exactly the plan. So here we go. Verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Why in the world did I include that? Because if you've been at Grace Life here for just a few months, one of the things we did at the end of the year last year is talk about life in exile and then a church in exile. We put a lot of time into studying Daniel. Here's what you need to understand. Mordecai's great-great, I'm sorry, one great. Mordecai's great-grandfather was with Daniel. He was carried away into exile with Daniel. And we haven't had a chance to talk about uh, the things like the book of Nehemiah and Ezra where some of those people were finally set free and they went back to Israel and Jerusalem to try to rebuild it, but everyone didn't go back. A lot of people stayed put. At this point, they've married with other people, they've got houses, they've got things, and so some people are still there. And so now about three generations later, Mordecai is one of those. He's a Jew. He's now living in the capital of this new empire, okay? And so here we are with uh this. He was bringing up Hadassah, and that is Esther. Finally, Esther, the co-star of the story, shows up, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her. It's his own daughter. So we've got Jews that were exiled. Now this is uh, more than a century later, a couple of generations later. They're still living in exile in essence. There are still people ruling over them. And so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the capital, I'm sorry, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him. This is Esther and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. And here, this is an important sentence we'll get to later why it's so important. But Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. She didn't show up saying, hey, by the way, I'm a Jew. I am one of the people that was exiled with those people long ago, and I'm actually not one of you ethnically. She didn't say anything about that. And this is an incredible thing that God was doing. I mean, we are talking about every attractive single virgin from, like I said, Egypt to India to Eastern Europe. That's a lot of people. And God put her first. God put her in a place where she's first. And so, in verse 16, When Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. This is the second thing that happens in your situation. God is setting you up for your part. God is going to do something amazing, and he's making all these moves. They look random to us, but nothing is random. And then God is going to put you in a situation where you are going to play a part of making him look really awesome when he shows up and does something cool. But you've got to play your part. He's going to put you into this place. Now, here is the bad news for us today. Maybe it's not bad news, but just because of our humanity, we're going to take it as bad news. When God sets us up for our part, we don't always get to be queen don't always get to be a king sometimes we get to go through bankruptcy if your situation is to be delivered financially through a miracle then you're going to need to go through some financial hard times maybe god is setting you up because you're going through a sickness if you need god to show up and do a miracle that only god can do then first you're going to have to face something that no doctor can do Whatever God is setting you up for way too often, I'm sorry to tell you, is not to be a queen. But is to go through a struggle that at this point, this is where the enemy, I've got four things in this situation I'm going to show you. And it's after number two at this point, the enemy wants you out. He wants you done and he wants you giving up and he wants you believing that God is not going to show up. And so don't be surprised at this point. That God's been doing some random things. You don't even recognize what he's up to. So actually, to be honest, you don't even think God is moving in your life. And then God sets you up to do something amazing. But unless you get to be queen, you probably see it more as a problem than a good thing. And then as we get to this point, naturally, what's going to happen? If God is ready and God gets you ready, the enemy is going to show up. Third thing that happens in your situation, an enemy is setting up for your demise. An enemy is ready to take you out. So for the sake of reading all of Esther, I'm going to give you the backstory. story. Uh, uh, Esther's uncle here, his name is Mordecai. And Mordecai is an important figure in the royal court. But he has a rival. And the rival's name is Haman. And uh, Haman wanted to be king because he was just that arrogant and stupid. Of course, he knew he wasn't, knew he never would be, but he wanted that kind of power. He wanted to be at the king's right hand, and he wanted everybody to bow down to him and everybody to treat him like he was the coolest dude. If the king's not in the room, he was playing, you know, like I'm the king kind of guy. You you bow down to me. But Mordecai refused. And Mordecai was basically to the point of like, look, dude, you you just like me, man. We're just workers in the court. Get a grip, man. I ain't bowing down to you. And so this started a fight because Haman is so infuriated that Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. He says, I want to take you out. Matter of fact, not only do I want to take you out, I want to take out all your people. My hatred for you is so strong. I don't just want you dead. I want you and anybody of your lineage dead. I want every Jew in this entire kingdom dead. So how the story goes, Haman goes to the king. He tells a little lie. He starts out with a little bit of truth. King, there are some people that live in your land. They're spread. They're scattered out everywhere. And then he says, but these people, they don't honor the king's laws. That was an absolute lie. They did. They did everything that the king would ask them to do. And so because of that, he says this phrase, he says, it was not to the king's profit to keep these people. So, hey, I've got an idea. Why don't you issue a decree that can't be revoked, that they be exterminated? And the king says, so these people don't follow my laws and It's not to my prophet? Sounds like a good idea. Let the decree be issued. And so it was. We're going to pick it up, chapter 4, verse 3 here. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes, and at this point, Esther is confused. What in the world is going on? Again, she lives in the king's palace. No one there knows she's a Jew. She has no reason to know what has happened. No one would bother to inform her that she's about to be killed because no one knows who she is, right? Right? And so at this point, Esther sees what's going on, and she sends a messenger, one of her servants, to go and talk to Mordecai and say basically, hey, what's up? In verse 8, Mordecai also gave him, her servant, a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And so Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And then Esther spoke to Hathak. Pretty sure that's the wrong button back there. I've got a lot of buttons, but let's not do that one again. And so then Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai has said, but then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go back to Mordecai and say, are you crazy? Actually, here's the way she worded it. All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, As for me, I I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. I mean, I thought I was the most beautiful in the land and even became queen, but somehow he hadn't even wanted to see my face in 30 days. So I'm not sure what's going on, but chances are pretty good if I walk in there, I'm not walking back out. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. And I don't know, I've always kind of got like that fiddler on the roof imagination of, you know what Mordecai is like, you know, oh, I just love you so much. You know, you're my daughter, you're my family. And at this moment, this is a completely different Mordecai. I was like, now nah, let me talk to you. Anyway, he kind of has this thing here. He says, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. I mean, this is not that sweet little uncle who raised her up. Wow. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You see, maybe you have come to this situation for such a time as this. And maybe what you're facing is just as risky as what Esther is facing. Because in order for God to show up and deliver you miraculously from stage 4 cancer, your life has got to be on the line. Just like Esther's was. If I go into this place, I may not come back out. You're exactly right. If you lose your job and go through a financial hardship, you may not come back out with your house and with your car and with your retirement fund. But if God's going to show up and do a financial miracle, you've got to be in a situation where you think you're walking in and not walking back out. That is the only way that God can have all the glory when this is done. The enemy thinks he's going to win, but he's not going to win because our final step of our situation is this. You set God up. To move powerfully. You set God up to move powerfully. He's the only one that can show up and do everything. So Esther takes the rebuke from her uncle. Esther says, All right, you're right. You're right. It's not going to take long before people figure out when every Jew in the entire empire is killed, somebody, somebody at the very least, Haman will eventually point it out. By the way, so is the queen. And at that point, I'm dead. So let me go and figure out what I can do here. And so here's what Esther sets up God to move powerfully. Powerfully, Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. All right, then go gather all of the Jews to be found in Susa. This is the capital city and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. This is what we're going to do for three days. And then then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I will perish. Do not eat for three days, not night night not day. Here's what you need to know. A lot of fasting back then was actually only a partial day kind of thing. They could fast when the sun was up and then when it was nighttime, they could come back and actually eat again. It just depended on what fast they were doing and why they were doing it and so forth. And so it would have been kind of a norm to skip breakfast and lunch and to kind of have a good little uh, ketchup uh, feast sort of thing when not ketchup, but ketchup with eating. They didn't have ketchup. How'd y'all think that anyway? To to feast, uh, you kind of went when this when the sun went down and she said, No, 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 we're too desperate for that. We're so desperate, we're not even going to enjoy any of that. Here's